0: Okay, so welcome everyone. I was uh, asked today to comment on a news article, which it's funny. I don't ever, don't generally have much to say about the news. The article is about um, the situation in Burma, which apparently is getting worse for the minority groups. And um, so the person asking me about it commented that, it seemed troubling that Buddhists would. Um, well, the article is about. Um, it said that there were Buddhists who were rioting and pillaging and, and destroying mosques and driving out Muslims from the central part of Burma. And so he said he found this troubling that um, Buddhism would be the cause of such a thing, or he found for this reason it troubling to call oneself a Buddhist, or he didn't want to associate himself with Buddhism. I thought it, you know, I've heard this before, but it's, it's, it's it's an odd sort of statement to make because you know there's nothing in the Buddha's teaching that would even allow for such a thing let alone support it the Buddha said if there if there's sawing your limbs off if someone's tying you down and sawing off your limbs with a double bladed saw he said if someone for that reason would get angry they wouldn't be following his teaching. So I said, "Well, Buddhism is just the teaching of the Buddha. So, to the extent that you follow his teachings, that makes you Buddhist to that extent." But he wasn't satisfied. He said, "Well, these people call themselves Buddhist. not aren't they the best? And you know, aren't they aren't they capable of calling themselves Buddhists?" And I said, "Well, no, not really." If someone doesn't follow the teachings of Karl Marx, you can't call him a Marxist. Karl Marx was a political or economic, I don't know, some communist, he was socialism or communism or whatever, Marxism. I can call myself a Marxist all I want, but if I don't follow his teachings, it's, it's, it's exactly like I said a donkey following after a bunch of horses and saying, I'm a horse, I'm a horse. But his skin isn't like the horse? His sound isn't like a horse? Does donkeys sound like horses? No. And he said, that's not that's a, that's not a proper simile, so I, I, I pasted him the sutta because it's not my simile, it's the Buddha's simile. The Buddha said, if someone goes around following after the monk, saying, I'm a monk, I'm a monk, but he doesn't keep morality, he doesn't keep have concentration, and he doesn't have any wisdom. You can't call him a monk. It doesn't matter whether they go around saying what they are. So at that point he didn't respond. I don't think he was very happy with my comment. But anyway, actually he'll probably see this video and so Anyway, that's... Uh, I'm not. I'm not trying to ridicule. There's just an interesting argument, um, because it's something that many people say. It, it's this interesting thing. Buddhists in, or people in, let's say it this way, people in in the East, in traditional Buddhist countries, say that they're Buddhist without practicing the Buddhist teaching. They, that all they want is to be able to say that they're they're Buddhist. They're not interested. Some people. This is not. There are people who are not interested in practicing the Buddhist teaching, but still call themselves Buddhist. And then you have these people who don't want to call themselves Buddhist, they just want to practice the Buddhist teaching, <laughs> which is this really odd dichotomy here. We have some people in, in non Buddhist countries who are deathly afraid of the idea of being called Buddhist. I say, no, no, I'm just practicing the Buddha's teaching. Well, to me, that <clears throat> I don't understand how you can call yourself something without following the principles. If something is based on principles and based on teaching, if Buddhism was based on faith, then being a Buddhist would depend on faith. I believe in the Buddha. But that that can't be enough to be a Buddhist because Buddhism has nothing to do with faith. Just like Marxism has nothing to do with faith. I believe in Karl Marx. This doesn't make you a Marxist. I'm you know if you're a Jungian, uh, what is this psychotherapist or psychologist? You have to follow. The, you have to practice. You have to teach or or. Give therapy according to Jungian methods, Carl Jung. No? So it's um, just something interesting to comment on because a lot of people say this, and a lot of people in modern times will say this. Even I've heard even Sri Lankan people tell me this. I'm a someone called himself a Buddhologist because <laughs> Buddhism is a science. Well, okay doesn't matter what you say. I mean, to me, you're a Buddhist if you follow the Buddhist teaching. It doesn't matter what else you might believe or what else you might think. You know? it's, um... And I, I think it's important because people misunderstand. They think they get turned off from what they call organized religion, which is really, in fact, just organized culture and generally a lot of bigotry and nationalism and pride and so on, all states which are quite foreign to Buddhism, you know. I I don't think Buddhism could ever be, look what you see now, in Bhutan, they're kicking people out of Bhutan apparently, because they're not Buddhist, kicking these people out of their homes where they've lived for generations. Um, Well, you know, there's problems in Sri Lanka, I don't, you know, that's a very complicated situation, but... You know, in general you have people in Buddhist countries who call themselves Buddhists, who are not acting very Buddhist. So, I, I wouldn't say this person is Buddhist, that person is not Buddhist. I would say it's a matter of degree. You know, the, the, the more you practice the Buddhist teaching, the more Buddhist you are. You can't say because someone gets angry they're not Buddhist. Right? But you can't say that anger is is Buddhism. You know, if a person gets angry that's because they're Buddhist or has something to do with the fact that they're Buddhist. Or oh they're Buddhist, they they you know look at the Buddhism has bad in it as well, you know. You see, oh look at these Buddhists doing things. See, all religions are bad. All religions teach people to do evil. I don't see how you can say that. You'd have to find something in the Buddhist teaching that is justifying these actions. So I was in Thailand for example, the south of Thailand has problems. I don't know if it still it had problems with these people who wanted to take over certain parts of the south And I said, well, you know, it's probably not that You know, I was teaching in Thailand I said, it's probably not that popular But you know what the Bodhisatta did When he was king And there was a king in the Jatakas There was a king who came to take over his city And they said, well, should we fight? And he said, well, fight? Let him in, if he wants it, let him take it <laughs> He gave his kingdom to the enemy He just said Come, come, I'm not going to fight you. If you want it, take it. So they took him and they buried him up to his neck in the graveyard and left him there. This is what, uh, (laughs) this is Buddhism. They buried the bodhisattva up to his neck in the graveyard. And and then these uh, jackals came at night because they eat live or dead people. They eat the helpless, so they came up to the bodhisattva, the head, the biggest dog came up to the bodhisattva, the biggest jackal came up to the bodhisattva, and he's going to bite the bodhisattva, and the, so the bodhisattva went like this and gave him his neck. Would you do that? What if you were buried up to your neck, what would you do? And there was a jackal coming for you. Hide? You're buried up to your neck. I can't hide I can see you You know why he did this? So that the jackal would come in And and bite his neck And you know what he did when the jackal Went in to bite his neck? He bit the jackal (laughs) Sneaky, huh? He did, this is what the Jataka said He bit the jackal on the neck And just held on Vicious And the jackal screamed and was totally in fright and all the other jackals ran away and the jackal you know when a dog when you when a dog is trying to escape it goes crazy so it started going crazy and tearing up the earth and so on and suddenly he was free and then the earth the jackal tore up the earth and he could get out and once he could get out he chased away the jackal it's the power of well, the power of the bodhisattva. Some of us might not be so lucky, but this is Buddhism, you know. If if you these examples of not being angry when people are cutting your arms and legs off, of letting people have your kingdom, you know, these are the kind of teachings that sometimes they don't want you to hear. But, uh, so it, it doesn't mean that we have to be completely Buddhist. Sometimes a, king, a Buddhist king might not follow that example. But I would say to that extent he's not practicing Buddhism. So that's fine. We can't all practice Buddhism 100%. Not, uh, not unless we're an arahant or a Buddha or a bodhisatta. It doesn't make us not Buddhist. We're Buddhist to the extent that we practice Buddhism, just like we're Christian to the extent that we follow the teachings of Christ. So I thought this was interesting something to talk about, but I also thought it would be a good a good way to uh, approach the question well then then, what exactly does it mean to be a Buddhist because the buddha didn't didn't just leave this question unanswered he didn't say um, or just follow my teachings and you're a Buddhist." He did talk about what it means to be. A Buddhist, what it means to be following his teachings, because he pointed out that many people think they're following the teachings. Not only not only is it a question of um, practicing of, of focusing on the practice, but also a question of practicing correctly or actually practicing. So he said, "There's five types of people in the world that might call themselves Buddhists." Or he didn't use the word Buddhist. The Buddha never had this word Buddhist. So that, that's why a lot of people say that well, there's the Buddha didn't call his followers Buddhists. But I think that's splitting hairs because he didn't have to. You know, you're you're called a Buddhist if you follow the Buddha, the Buddha. Or you can think of whatever name you want, but it's got to be a name for it, whether you identify yourself with it or not. But the the name the, the that was used in this instance is called Dhamma Vihari. So this is the teaching on the Dhamma Vihari, one who lives by the Dhamma. And and in that I suppose there is something that, that it's a way of avoiding the danger of of um, of of labels. And I, I understand where this person was coming from and, and where people like this are coming from because they see how identifying as a group is problematic. Because you see, when ordinary people call themselves Buddhists, it uh, can actually amplify their own bigotry and their own you know, in militarism or, or, or in, uh, nationalism or so on. And they can use it as an excuse. You know, they, they say, well, these people are not Buddhist And... Therefore, they shouldn't be here, and we want to protect Buddhism, which is rid- ridiculous. It's nothing to do with Buddhism, but uh, you—it may be a reason for uh, being careful to use the term. And you know, in in fact, if you if you want, you could be careful to to say you don't have to go around saying I'm saying to people I'm Buddhist, or or uh, you know. Um, Promoting the fact that you're Buddhist because it can lead to misunderstandings. So the the Buddha did often, especially being in India, he talked about the Dhamma, and he um, he, he he. It was a play on this this Hindu concept. So he was actually, you know, he called himself a Brahmin at times, which uh, you know, would obviously make the Brahmins kind of upset and and you know, make make them rethink. Or make people rethink What it means to be a Brahmin Could the Buddha possibly be called a Brahmin But he said it's because of his actions It's because of one's actions That you call them a Brahmin Or that you call them a Samana or so on and, and so he used this word Dhamma He talked about one who lives by the Dhamma As uh, or, or he talked about the Dhamma as being the the core or the the truth dhamma the word dhamma just means reality or it means truth or or in Hinduism it actually meant code or or righteousness so every group in in Hinduism has its own code the warriors have their own code the Brahmins have their own code their way of behavior so so this word Dhamma-Vihari is actually kind of coming from the Hindu. Uh, religions, or the Brahmin religion, or, or the religion of India, where they thought everyone had their had their own dhamma and had to live by their dhamma. So the warriors had to live by the warrior dhamma. That means they had to kill each other, or not each other. They had to kill the enemies, or so on. And and, and even fighting in battle was was considered to be a good thing because it's following your dhamma. It's living by your dhamma. So. This monk came and asked the Buddha, well, in the Buddha's teaching, what what does it mean to follow the Dhamma, to live by the Dhamma, to live by the right code, or live by what is right? Or or to live by the Dhamma, because it's an understanding that this means the Buddha's teaching. How does one live by the Buddha's teaching? So the Buddha said there are five types of people in the world, or five types of people in, in, in Buddhism, five types of people who might call themselves uh, well, in this case, I would say might call themselves Buddhists. Let's put it this way. Because I think it's still appropriate. I still would use the term. Even though, as I said, you have to be careful that it doesn't become identifying. Because Buddhism isn't about, being a Buddhist isn't about identifying yourself as a Buddhist. It's about following the teachings. And whether you call yourself it or not, you naturally become a Buddhist if you're practicing the teachings. It doesn't mean you're anything different. It just means, oh, that person's a Buddhist. Why? Because... They, list, they, they followed the Buddha's teaching. They said the Buddha taught this, and they said, well, that makes sense, and so they followed it. But he said there are five types of people who might call themselves one who lives by the Dhamma. The first one is one who studies a lot. The second one is one who recites a lot or memorizes a lot. The third one is one who teaches a lot. The fourth one is one who thinks a lot. And the fifth one is one who practices a lot. You These are the five people. So the first type of person is someone who has um, listened to all of the Buddha's sermons or or gone to teachers and learned all of the Buddha's teachings, what the Buddha taught on this and that, and maybe they Memorize, uh, maybe they listened to or studied or had someone teach them all of the Buddha, all of the sutras and so on. You know, like nowadays, people who read all of the Tipitaka or people who watch all of my videos on YouTube, <laughs> people who have actually watched all of them, which is pretty impressive in its own way. People who study a lot. So some people I like this. They want you know, people who listen to to Dhamma talks two times, three times a day. Um, this is one who studies a lot, but the Buddha said, "No, J. Dhamma Vihari. This is not one who lives by the Dhamma." Because study itself, the, the problem with studying is it has nothing to do with reality. There's not a grasp of of the connection between what you're studying and what's really going on. As Mahasi Sayadaw said, "There's not enough concentration studying because there were some people in Burma at the time, uh, the Mahasi Sayadaw." who were trying to get to Nibbana by studying. So they would they would read the books on the sixteen stages of knowledge or they would read through the Visuddhimagga and get some intellectual appreciation of, of the knowledges. They would ask each other, okay, so do you understand impermanence? Yes, everything arises and ceases. Ah yes, we understand that. If you think about it, it's true. Okay, we've got that stage of knowledge. Then they go on to the next one. Everything ceases and so on. And he said, well, it would be if, if they could have enough Concentration at that time It would be possible, actually And in fact it is, because some people When they're listening to the Buddha's teaching Became enlightened And even nowadays, if you go to meditation centers People have these stories Where they were listening to a Dhamma talk And suddenly they had some profound insight Or realization, or maybe even entered into cessation Just when they were listening to the Dhamma But it had nothing to do with the studying You see, it's it's because of the level of of comprehension or understanding that they had by actually practicing what they were studying. So the Buddha would talk about the four noble truths. Well you can't intellectually understand the four noble truths, or he would talk about the eightfold noble path or so on. It's only through actually putting these things into practice. It means they would see that, ah yes, look, everything's arising and ceasing. They would watch the arising and ceasing of phenomena the seeing coming and going, the hearing coming and going the feelings in the body, the thoughts coming and going, the emotions coming and going and they would come to see that everything was impermanent, suffering and non-self. You can do that when you're listening to the Dhamma sometimes. You can even acknowledge the sound in your ear and become enlightened. But it doesn't come just from studying. Studying is only intellectual knowledge. We know this because people can study addiction and still be addicted to things. You know, doctors can still smoke cigarettes even though they know that smoking cigarettes is bad. Intellectual activity, intellectual learn, uh, knowledge isn't enough. The second type of person, one who, who, who chants a lot or who memorizes a lot or recites a lot. Um, you know, of course, this refers to monks who would go about reciting the Buddha's teaching, which is how you would learn. The only way to learn is um, to have someone recite it for you, to someone to repeat back the teaching to you. So this would be a person who parroted back the Buddhist teaching, maybe. Uh, or, or, and I'm specifically talking about someone who spends all their time uh, reciting the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha said this. So when we recite, when we do the chanting, it's um, it's quite pertinent nowadays because there are some people who just do a lot of chanting and they can actually become very nice people as a result. Their minds are very pure and they, they enter into states of concentration as a result of the chanting. But the Buddha said it's not enough. This isn't really someone who lives by the Dhamma because it's just a form of concentration. It's a kind of a peace and a faith um, we were talking. Someone was m- talking about prayer, and uh, how how actually there are studies that do show some kind of benefit of benefit to the person when they pray. And someone else said, "Well, that's just the pl- placebo effect." Um, but and so I looked up the word placebo. I was interested to know where it came from, and it actually comes from prayer. Placebo means uh I will please. Uh, I will please the Lord. It's a placebo is actually from the the, the the Old Testament. It means I will please the Lord and it's the start of this prayer that they would do. There's a very esoteric uh, origin of the word placebo. But the meaning is that it, it pleases. Placebo was used to to somehow it, it became to mean something that pleases you but doesn't actually help you. And so chanting is kind of, in, in that realm, it, it pleases you, it makes you happy, but it doesn't cure the problem. So a placebo in, in medicine does the same sort of thing. It um, Or or the, the, it originally was, that was the original meaning. Now the funny thing is that the placebo effect, or this kind of placebo effect, can actually help you. It can make you a calmer person, a, a better person, if you do a lot of chanting. Um, but on the, on the other hand, it it, uh, it it may not. There was this story about uh, this. I heard this story once by an Australian monk. He said uh, there was this this devout mahayana buddhist woman who kept chanting the name of uh, of avalokiteshvara because this is what they do in some buddhist countries or buddhist circles let's say <coughs> they would chant namo amitabha namo amitabha which means homage to avalokiteshvara or or amitabha or, or whatever the name is namo amitabha namo amitabha and the idea is you chant it continuously. Namo mitava, namo mitava, So she would chant it when she was washing dishes. She would chant it when she was cooking. She would chant it when she was cleaning. She would chant it when she was walking. She would chant it before she went to bed thousands and thousands of times a day, a very devout Buddhist. And her son saw that this was really not... Um, Obviously not the teachings of the Buddha. It, didn't, it wasn't really changing her. And he thought he'd show her this because he had seen that it, it hadn't actually made her a better person. And so while she was chanting one day, he said, Mother, 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 what do you want? Mother, If if you get angry at me, for calling your name three times. How angry do you think Amitabha is going to be for you calling his name thousands of times? (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) That was quite a story. So so to the extent that that's a true story, Um, chanting may not be all that it's cracked up out to, out to be. But it certainly doesn't bring about wisdom. This was his idea, was to bring some sort of understanding of what is chanting for, because it's supposed to be the mantra. It's supposed to be a mantra to focus the mind and to bring about purity of mind, which is actually a fairly Buddhist thing. You, in, in that sense, chanting the, this Namo Middapa could be very well Buddhist. It's just not enough. It doesn't lead one to live by the Dhamma. There's something missing there. The third is a person who teaches a lot. So they, this is, this kind of person doesn't just recite the Buddhist teaching, but actually explains it, as I'm explaining it now. So some people um, take this as their their life. Many, many monks spend all their time teaching teaching in universities, or, you know, teaching, giving dhamma talks, day in and day out. Um, and, and, and don't do anything else with the knowledge. They spend all their time teaching and thinking, well, that's um, the, the greatest thing is to spread the Buddha's teaching. You know, he taught us, so we should teach, we should spread the teaching on. But they neglect their own practice. There was a monk like this in the time I'm not sure, I think in Sri Lanka in ancient times the Visuddhimagga mentions it, or it's mentioned in some, one of the ancient texts, but I think it was after the Buddha passed away. Uh, he was a teacher and he taught, he, he had many students, and many of his students became enlightened. And so one of, his student was, one of his students was an anagami, and he was sitting in meditation and he thought to himself, wow, this is incredible what we have gained from the Buddha's teaching." I wonder what our teacher has gotten from this teacher. And as an anagami, he was able to send his mind to uh, encompass the teacher's mind. And he oh, our teacher is still a putujana. Our teacher is still an ordinary human being. No, nothing. Oh, this is Amazing, no? That you can teach and get nothing. This, this is a, a reminder to us that First of all, don't be so hard on your teachers. Oh he's not an arahant, so what does he know? But second of all, don't don't uh don't think just because someone teaches means they're an arahant. <laughs> oh what a great teacher, he must be an arahant. You can fake it. <laughs> or not even fake it, you don't have to fake it, but you can give you can lead someone to realize the truth as long as you just parrot it and, and give the correct interpretation that leads someone to to realize for themselves. But it does nothing for you. It doesn't mean you live by the Dhamma. So this guy said, well, what am I going to do for our teacher? He said, okay, I've got, I've got a good one. And so he went to his teacher and he said, uh, I'm wondering if we could have a lesson today. And the teacher said, I'm sorry, I don't have any time for lessons now, I've got you know, all these people, what are you doing, you know, just come in here and want a lesson? And he said, no, no, I, I, I don't want a lesson from you, <laughs> I've got a lesson for you. And he sat down, cross-legged, and he floated up into the air, and he said, you don't have time for yourself, let alone time for other people, I don't want your lesson. And he floated out the window so they say I've never seen anyone float I don't know that it really happens but they say in ancient times uh, you could see you know it was like there were flocks of birds in the air because the monks would all be flying around I think that's in one of the one of the Sri Lankan chronicles I don't know could be I, feel like, uh, huh? uh, I saw uh, Discovery, uh, monk is floating. floating. Yeah. Mm. And uh, discovery show. I think it could be. I mean, I'm not... All of these things, I'm very open-minded about it. I, what I don't like is these skeptics who are... Not that they say, prove it, prove it, but that they seem very bitter about it all. They're kind of threatened by it. Like if they just say, meh, doesn't sound reasonable to me, I'm just going to ignore it, that'd be fine, but they get very in-your-face about it. I don't believe you. Prove it to me. And they ridicule you, and ridicule you, and so on. I don't need you to prove it to me. If you believe it, that's fine. It doesn't make a difference to me. Yes. You know, if if a monk can float in the air, it doesn't change my belief system. If he can't float in, if it's impossible, it doesn't change the fact that everything's impermanent, everything's suffering, everything's not self. You know. Doesn't change the core of Buddhism. But so uh, so that that might be another lesson: is not to get too caught up in in proving these things. Because it doesn't prove anything. No, Devadatta apparently could fly through the air. And look what happened to him. Do you know what happened to Devadatta? He he tried to kill the Buddha. Mm. And he convinced a prince to kill his father. There's nothing worse, there's very few things worse than, there's nothing worse than killing your father. The only thing as bad as it? Killing your mother. Or hurting a Buddha. Or killing an arahant. Or apparently causing a schism in the Sangha. I'm not sure exactly what. I, oh, how far you'd have to go to, to create a true schism? What killing a monk? If he's just a monk, it's bad. But if he's not an arahant, it's not as bad. See, Because killing an arahant is really bad. Killing an enlightened being. They're so pure. it's a very powerful deed. You know, like, uh, it's easy to kill someone if they've killed lots and lots of people, right? Everyone, society isn't going to get upset with you if you... Well, many societies would you know. I, I would think it's a bad thing. But many societies in America, like, they kill people for killing people. If you kill lots of people, they kill you. In some places. But if the person did nothing wrong... When you try to kill them, you get in big trouble for it, right? So there's a difference. And this is kind of naturally you feel this way. So it's very, very hard to kill. You know, killing an arahant is a very, very big thing. Just like killing your mother or your father, you see. It really, really, really changes a person. You have to be careful if, if your parents are uh, dying or so on. You don't want to give, you know, you don't want to uh, put them out of their misery or something like that. No, don't do that. Like you can't do that in the West anyway. There's some European countries that allow it. You have to be very careful. Anyway, back to our story. So this uh, this teacher was was uh, quite alarmed by this. You know, that he had just been given a talking to. And he realized that this was the worst hypocrisy here. He was teaching all this stuff, but he he remembered the Buddha's words that... Maybe he remembered the Buddha's words, I'm just making this up. Um, where the Buddha said, a person who learns a lot but doesn't practice is like a cowherd who doesn't own the cows. Well, you can look after the cows, but you never... If you don't own the cows, and suppose you have a herd of a thousand cattle. If you don't own them, do you get any milk? No. Any butter? Any cheese? Nothing. You can look after them all day and all night, all, every day, every day in, day out. But if they're not yours, you get nothing from them. He said, this is like a person who learns a lot but doesn't put it into practice. And so he said, this is this is wrong. And so right then and there he stopped. He gave up all his students and he went off into the forest and he started practicing meditation very strenuously. Pushing himself. He said, I'm going to become an arahant. I'm going to become an arahant. I'm going to become enlightened. And because he was pushing himself out so hard he got nowhere. He got nothing out of it. He practiced and practiced and pushed. And so much clinging. Meditators can get a lot of clinging. He's like, push and push, I must, I must. And it's not natural. Because habits are natural, they're very deep and and organic. So the solution has to be organic. It has to be a slow, gradual, natural process where you get it. You can't force enlightenment. So he got nowhere and he pushed and he pushed and he got stressed and stressed and stressed until he collapsed. And he said, this is useless. I'm useless. I'm... uh, in, incapable," he said. "I'm one of those people the Buddha called moga Purisa, useless. They can get nothing out of this." And so he sat down and he started crying. and He was crying, and crying, and then, and then he heard a sound of some something, and he looked over and there was a very beautiful, radiant being crying beside him. And he said, who are you? Wiping away his tears, who, who are you? I'm an angel. I'm, one, I'm an angel who lives in this forest. Why are you crying? I, I, I came here, you know, I knew you were this great teacher, so I came here and I thought I'd practice with you. Well, why are you crying? Well, I saw that you were crying, so I thought, well, that must be the practice that leads to Nibbāna. <laughs> so, So I thought, well, okay, he's crying, I'll cry. When you walked, I walked. When you sat, I sat. When you started crying, I started crying. And he said, oh, this is stupid. He felt very embarrassed. And then he he said, this is ridiculous. And he got up and he started doing more practice. And he became enlightened as a result. Because he gave up his ego. He realized how ridiculous he was being. So, number three, the person who teaches is not a person who lives by the Dhamma. Number four, a person who thinks about the Dhamma, Bahulo, one who is always thinking. So they consider the Buddha's teaching, is this true, is that true, and they come up with all sorts of arguments, and uh, they come up with all sorts of points, of, uh, and they're able to understand, you know, like, paticcasamuppada, it means this, it means that. And... You know. They think about whether monks are allowed to eat cheese in the evening or not, and they figure out exactly why. Why I mention that is because, I've said this before, there are, only, there are the two biggest controversies in uh, Thai Buddhism. This is a monk, a monk told me. He said, the two biggest controversies in Thai Buddhism are Bhatichya samupada and whether monks can eat cheese in the evening. So, it's weighty subjects that people think about and stay up late debating, late at night debating. Because, for example, paticha sumupada can be either three lives or one life. There's the commentary says it's three lives. You know? You've got paccaya saṅkhāra, that's past life. And then saṅkhāra paccaya vinyāna. Vinyāna up until um, upadāna is this life. Upadana leads to bhava, bhava is the next life, bhava pachaya. But it doesn't mean, I've said, talking to this before, it doesn't mean those things are out of the practice of meditation, because the other people say, no, it's all in one life, otherwise how could you get rid of avidya if it's in the past? It's only a wide open interpretation of, of examining, you know, because avidya pachaya sankara is also this life, which is going to create vinyana for the next life, which is going to create bhava for the life after that. It's just a matter of separating it out and understanding how the process of, of rebirth works. When they say, no, rebirth is only the present moment, well, it's true, and and, and that interpretation is valid as well. But you see how it, it all, thinking, too much thinking, you know, it must be like this, and thinking, 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 which way is it, is it like this, is it like this? this is called vitaka Bahulo, the person who thinks a lot many buddhist scholars it's, it's if you read some of the literature out there all the thinking that goes in the whole bikuni debate is a lot of is a good example um, i heard that the bikunis the bikun the theravada bikunis in the world are have a lot of trouble teaching the dhamma because the people who come to their talks don't want to hear about the dhamma they just want to hear about the bikuni how is it, how do you become a bhikkhuni and so on? And they want to argue about it. They said that the same monk is monk in Thailand. He said to me, it be, "It's a shame because some of them are really good teachers, but they don't have the opportunity because people want to debate and argue and and and, and so on, a lot of mental activity. This is called vitakka bhavana." No, so these are the four that are not, not Buddhist, and I know, I know the Buddha didn't use the word Buddhist, but I would say I wouldn't call these people Buddhist. Why? Because they're not really, uh, you know, if if that's if they only have these and don't have the fifth one, they're not really doing what the Buddha said to do. They're not living by the Dhamma. If they want to call themselves Buddhist, I'm not going to say you're not a Buddhist, but in my mind, I'll think they're not a Buddhist. Or as I said, it's not about being a Buddhist or not being a Buddhist. You are Buddhist to the extent that you practice. If you don't practice the Buddhist teaching at all, I'd say I don't understand how you can be a Buddhist. So if you keep five precepts, well, to that extent you're Buddhist. You know? If you're keeping them because the Buddha, because of the Buddhist teaching that you've learned, I'd say to that extent you're a Buddhist. If you practice charity, you know, because the Buddha said charity is good, and because you listened and you agree with the Buddha's interpretation of charity, and therefore you practice charity, well, to that extent, you're Buddhist. If you you uh, practice meditation, according to the Buddhist teaching, according to the way the Buddha taught meditation, and you're practicing meditation based on his teaching, then I would say, to that extent, you're Buddhist. So it's this fifth one that's important, is the actual practice. That's what makes you Buddhist. Now the qualities of practice. The, the, this is, in this sutta, is really an interesting sutta because the Buddha details, gives very specific characteristics of a person who we can call a practitioner. Number one, he said, Na rinchati, na rinchati, no, na divasang He doesn't let the days go by. It makes use of the time that we have now. It doesn't let time go by, as the Buddha said. Don't let the moment pass you by. So it means it doesn't say, well, I'm going to practice next week or next month or next year. Or, oh, I practiced last week, last month, last year. Or, no, after I give this talk, we're going to practice. No, even right now we should be practicing. Right now our minds should be studying reality. We should be studying the the truth, as we as it happens, we should be looking at our minds. What's going on in our minds? Do we have um, liking, disliking? Do we have pain or aching or soreness? Do we feel happy or calm? What's going on with us? Because it happens every moment. No, there, there is no break. You can't take a break from any of this. Every moment we have we have. Uh, we have issues that we have to deal with. Every moment we're cultivating good habits or bad habits. Anger, greed, delusion, these are habit-forming. They're not static. The more you give rise to greed, the more greedy you become. The more you give rise to anger, aversion, the more averse you become. The more you give rise to delusion, so conceit, arrogance, and so on, the more conceited, arrogant, deluded you become. This occurs every moment. So these, if, we, if we have a phobia, a fear of something, every time that you get afraid of it, you're reinforcing it. It's not static. This is a big mistake that we make. We don't realize that by getting afraid of something, you're, you're, you're not only staying afraid, you're becoming more afraid. You're cultivating the habit to a greater extent. If we're worried about something, when you worry about something, you're not just reliving the worry. You're actually in, um, encouraging, increasing the worry. This is the the every moment this happens. It's happening right now. If we're if we're unmindful for one moment, in that moment there will arise uh, the liking or disliking, judging and 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 projecting and so on. So don't let, the, don't let time pass by. Don't let the days pass by. Ask yourself, this is one of the things, abhinna kitabang, one of the things that monks should frequently reflect upon. Uh, I remember the Pali. How are the days and month, how, what am I doing as the days and nights fly by? I forget the Pali. But we have to think, it's in our chanting book. What am I doing as the days and nights fly by? How am I living? How am I keeping myself? This is number one. Number two, narinchati patisala nang, not abandoning or neglecting solitude. The, 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 just as a, uh, plant has to grow in proper soil And can't be crowded by other plants It needs room to grow So too the Buddha's teaching Is rooted in solitude Without solitude The wisdom can't arise The, the knowledge, the understanding The concentration can't arise From kaya viveka, Without separating your body Out from the the things that cause you um, that disturb your mind without bringing the body away from them and finding a quiet place. It's very difficult, but more important is to separate the mind out, to get the mind out of uh, its papancha, the diversification, the projections, the things that entangle us in the world around us, to bring the mind back to reality keep the mind because you can be in a room full of people and be totally alone um, the wonderful thing one of the most wonderful things you realize about the Buddha's teaching is that the world can be chaotic as it might, as it wants around, in, around you and you can be totally as though you were in a forest you know, just birds chirping you hear people yelling and arguing around you it's just birds chirping what's the difference? When you come back to reality, when seeing is only seeing, hearing is only hearing, there's no difference between being in the jungle or being in in uh, the city. In the jungle, the trees are made of wood. In the city, they're made of concrete. That's the only difference. So, so the ability to pull yourself out of the the world because most of the world, most of what we call the world is just concepts. All of the you know, our cities and, and people and places and things, these are all just concepts. You can see this when you start acknowledging things as they are and cutting yourself off from the projections and the uh, attachments. When you just see things arising and ceasing, you realize that they're all the same. That in the end you can choose what to do. If you want to get addicted to them, you cultivate addiction. And you come to see what uh, what really makes up our experience—that addiction and aversion and so on—are not atomic. They have lots of little subatomic particles and pieces and events, sequences of events that we can change. That we can. Redirect, can overcome. So this is number two, is to don't neglect solitude. Don't get caught up in the world. Don't lose yourself in the world because that's the best way to, let, to lose your meditation. As soon as you get caught up in something, this is a problem, this is an issue, and you, don't, you, lose, you lose your mindfulness, you lose your focus. Number two. Number three, Anu but anuyunjati ajatang samatang. One focuses one's attention or, or sets oneself in the cultivation of inner tranquility. This is on the one side, see, because there are two sides. Number four, uttarincha sa atang. Panyaya atang One comes to know the meaning of that which one has learned uh, with with higher wisdom. Or one comes to know the higher meaning, know the meaning of that which one has learned, which one has studied with higher wisdom. No, the higher meaning. One comes to know the higher meaning with wisdom. So these are the two sides. Is one, you have to focus your mind. Your mind has to calm down. If your mind is not calm, it's like the the I'm talking about this 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 uh, pool. If the pool is disturbed and muddy and so on, you can't see anything in it. But when the mud, when the when the sand and the dust and the or the mud and so on settles, then you can see everything once it's clear, once it's calm. And the mind is the same. If the mind is all Roiled up and broiled up and uh, chaotic and confused, you can't see anything. We can't, in in our ordinary state, we can't really understand, we can't verify these things as true or false. You can't see whether anger is good for you or not. You can't intellectually understand this. There's, there's, There's not clarity for you to see it. You can't look and say, is anger good or bad for me? I have no idea. Why? Because it's all turbulent. It's all muddy. You can't see whether greed is good for you or not. Really, this is this is the key: is that our mind is not good enough. We think, you know, just go by common sense, right? Just go by reason. But you're, it's like asking someone to use something broken to to measure itself. The, the, the measuring instrument is broken. The mind is not working properly. How can you possibly use it? How could you trust your reason? How could you trust your subjective understanding until you fix it? So you have to order your mind first. You have to, before you can see clearly, your mind has to be focused, has to be fixed. This is why, you know, traditionally we would encourage people to practice sammata meditation first, to calm down your mind. If you have time, you can go into the jhanas and, and and get your mind well-ordered first. This is what um, people would do in the time of the Buddha. This is many many people even now will encourage this practice first, but it's not necessary. The Buddha didn't you know, say, "Well, first you have to go off and practice this." If you if you um, cultivate mindfulness here and now, you see that actually two things come, both of these things come together. That you also have concentration. Your mind quiets down. You see this. This happens and you gain insight at the same time so instead of doing one first and then the other you do them both together your mind quiets down and you see things as they are so this this is the, this other part that you get the inner tranquility but you also get this understanding you know, the the higher meaning the higher meaning it means all of the buddha's teaching it's uh, it's it's all clear and there's a meaning there And the deceptive thing is people think they understand, for example, impermanence, suffering, and non-self. The best part of meditation practice is when you surprise yourself, when you've studied all the Buddha's teachings and you know everything. And then you surprise yourself and realize that you really didn't know it at all. You didn't understand impermanence at all. You didn't understand suffering. You realize how, how actually you were, how complacent you were, because you thought you understood these things. It's amazing how after you, before you practice and you read the Buddha's teaching and then after you practice and go back and read the same teachings, what a different meaning it has to you. This is what it means by higher meaning. You actually get something more out of the same teachings. You understand the same teachings on a deeper level. All of the things that you study, they're true, they're right. But your mind is not yet ready to understand them fully and completely. And it's not, it doesn't come from introspection, it comes from realization of the truth so that you can see the, the exact meaning of what's being said. So these are the four, these four characteristics. These are what I would say makes someone, um, well, the Buddha said someone who lives by the Dhamma, so it's probably who you're going to call a Buddhist or not call a Buddhist is not really, it wasn't really the importance here. Importance is that we live by the Dhamma, whether you call yourself something or not. Um, but I would say this is the best, the, the best way one could possibly be uh, consider themselves to be a Buddhist. Anyway, so that was the talk tonight. Um, thank you all for listening, and now we'll continue on with meditation and try to put these teachings into into practice, so that we become one who lives by the Dhamma. Thank you.